Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, uh, a bunch of people submitted a bunch of questions on Facebook for you and I to answer. And we recorded an episode in which we answered a lot of the questions, but we didn't get to all of them. So I thought I'd have you back on the show to answer the final Facebook questions. What do you say, Bob? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob Gettle? I am a therapist uh, in practice here in Seattle. I run that DBT skills class, do a a couple counseling. It's very interesting to me. And you and me have been friends for 26 years. Yeah. Yeah. Long time. Long time. Uh, 26? 24. 25? 25. 25. 20. Wait. Was it? We started in 1995. Yeah. Yeah. So 24. It's hard to... There was a period of two years when I did not lay eyes on you once. Like in, really in that span of time? Yeah, during that time. And we, were, yeah. we didn't have a falling out or anything. No. Um, but we just, we did not see each other for two years. I think we would occasionally trade uh, phone calls because that was before texting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's been ebbs and flows of lifestyle. I mean, yeah. I, I've, you know, gone through a period, well, just one period of, of time in my life. Uh, from 2010 to 2014, I was getting my doctorate. Oh, well, yeah, you're a busy guy. Holy <sighs> cow. Man. I mean, it was, yeah. I, I was full-time at Antioch as an instructor. Right. I had a half-time private practice. Yeah. I was going to f- full-time uh, doctorate school. In fact, I was going a little faster than full-time. Wow. Um, I always had an internship during the doctorate, which, is, can be a, which was a full-time job my yeah. final year. Yeah. Uh, there's all these ancillary things you have to do with graduate school. Like you have to, you have to be in therapy. You have to get all this extra supervision. You had to be in therapy? Yeah. Antioch now requires therapy for all students now. Yeah. I know it's dicey, but I like it. Yeah. As program chair, I was um, hesitant to do that because Mm -hmm. I hate piling on Mm -hmm. uh, requirements that are uh, wonderful suggestions, but um, seem a little um, controlling on some level. Yeah. Plus, to to make people go to therapy when they don't want to, yeah, uh, feels a little funny because what good does that do? On the one hand, I mean that's that's the big problem with it, right? But on the other hand, it's sort of like you want to be a therapist and you haven't been in therapy. Like, what's that about? Totally. But there's so many things like that. Like, you want to be a therapist, but you don't like to talk about your feelings. Like, I'm not going to force someone to talk about their feelings. I'm going to say. Um, it's going to be really hard to be a good therapist and to survive every day if you don't talk about your feelings. But I'm so, you know, I, yeah, no, I want I things it. to be more of a guidance issue than yeah. a control issue. Maybe I, a person would then just talk about why they don't want to talk about their feelings. Well, what's that like? Yeah. You Instead know? of just, this is the rule. Yeah. Do, you follow know. it. Yeah, I get you. You're a, right. Another uh, thing I struggled with uh, as program director was require, because some, some programs require people to be, a member of the professional organization that they're accredited by. So, oh, really? Yeah. If you are a you know mental health counseling program, then there's this movement to require the students to be members of ACA, uh-huh. uh, marriage and family therapy programs. There's this movement to make the students members of AAMFT. And I, although I thought it would be a good idea if everyone was a member for the reasons simply for the reason that uh, with money comes political power. Yeah. You act, 
WMFT actually and ACA actually pay lobbyists to go to government officials to change the laws so that we can get parity of pay and yeah. and of rights and all that kind of stuff. And without that, we actually suffer it. Like just on that side note, in Texas recently, there was a t- I think a ten year battle in which the psychiatrists were trying to make it so that marriage and family therapists couldn't diagnose people. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> it was bizarre. I think it was the Medical Association, I think American Medical Association uh-huh. in Texas, huh. if I remember right. I could be wrong about that. But I do know that it was that some sort of other competing, so to speak, professional organization managed to lobby the government and at least take away uh, maybe take away the rights of marriage and family therapists to diagnose or th- severely threaten it on some level. And there was this massive le- legal battle, and the marriage and family therapist won in yeah. Texas to be able to diagnose because, of course, they can diagnose. They've been trained to diagnose. Yeah, it's not um, that hard. Right. So uh, so the um, only way that happened was because, or in all likelihood, was yeah. because People spend money every year. They spend, you know, I spend, I don't know, three or $400 a year on this professional membership. And that pays for lawyers and lobbyists and political activists and, right. you know, people who get volunteers together and write articles and all that kind of stuff so that we can um, keep our our living pretty much. So, so I always struggled with requiring the students to be members, but uh, when I... Um, uh, passed on the program directorship to Jennifer Sampson. Um, she initiated that. Oh, no kidding. Uh, yeah. And I, I always thought like, well, uh, one, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to, to be a member. And it's a, it's, it's something, there's a lot of other benefits besides just political power and, mm-hmm. and lobbying. Um, but I felt funny requiring people to, to be a member of this sort of thing. Uh, because what if you don't agree with what the professional organization is even doing? Yeah. What if you don't really identify as a marriage and family therapist? Right. What if you don't have the extra money? Oh. Uh, what if you don't want to Yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason? And, uh, uh, but you know, the tides are changing, I think. And I, I think, um, in the future, it'll just be a conclusion. It might even be a part of accreditation one day. I don't know. Mm. Um, the other thing is, is, uh, since we come from a time where accreditors weren't really a thing, Mm -hmm. they didn't, no one really, I mean, aside from major accreditors, like national level, just to say that your university is like not a, like a scam operation or something, but these sort of professional like KCREP and, and CoAMPT, these, we didn't come up in a time when that was a thing. Right. Yeah. And I, for so I was operating as a professor and as an administrator in university and as a clinician without the sort of professional organization being a thing. Like I wasn't a member of WAMFT uh, for the first 15 years of my career or 10 years of my career. I mean, are you were you a member of ACA? No, I'm uh, still not. Yeah. So I think we came from a time when it was just like, well, OK, I'm great. I'm, I, I'm glad they exist, but. I don't see the point in being a member. There's a lot of different benefits that ACA claims to give me that I could get elsewhere. You know what I mean? Um, And so I, but I think the younger generation are much more in line with accreditors and so are much more 
uh, apt to make it a requirement for students. So, sort of a cultural shift. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's, I mean, I see the downside. I'm not saying there isn't one, but um, I, I think perhaps as a profession, we're tightening up. Yeah. 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 Pros and cons. Pros so and cons. It's good to be tight. It's good to be tight. Mm-hmm. It's also bad to be tight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ashley on Facebook. What, what was that? What was the original question? I can't I have, remember. I, have, I don't think I've asked a question oh, yet. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. uh, Ashley on Facebook asks, discuss what y'all do for self-care. Bob, what do you do for self-care? I go home and watch TV with Colleen and have dinner and pet the dog. Um, I take naps. Um, I would say, though, that self-care when it comes to my job is not really a big factor for me. I've been doing this for a long time. And I think, um, I I can't say it's true for everybody, but I I think it's probably true for most people is you sort of develop a facility for um, caring, absolutely, and also um, being able to put it aside. So I don't feel responsible for my client's well-being. I don't mind that I think about them when I'm not at work because I don't experience that as intrusive. I guess I sort of, you know, I only have one phone, so anybody can call me anytime. It doesn't mean I'm always going to answer, but I, I don't have like this rigid, thick boundary between my personal life and my professional life. There's a boundary, you know, like I go on vacation, I don't do work, but um, I do not feel intruded upon by my clients. There are people in my life that matter to me, that I care about. Um, and but how, So the risk there would be that you're, uh, you'd get burnt out because you'd be too invaded and too accessible. Or something. So, so yeah. what do you do to manage that? I just, I don't get invaded. People like, just don't. I just, really. it just, yeah. It yeah. I have the same, like I have one email address yeah. for the most part. I have one telephone number. Right. Uh, definitely only one telephone number. Yeah. And it's the same phone for my mom, for right. my clients, right. for people at work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And people don't really call me very much. No. Uh, you see clients at home. And I see clients in my house. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a myth that, yeah. you know, the What About Bob movie Oh, where, right. Yeah. Where clients are uh, showing up at your house right. and constantly calling and constantly emailing and stuff. Uh, if anything, I will tell people, you know, you could you could call me. I, that's what I say. You know, you could email me right. instead of suffering in, uh, in silence. Right. I, in fact, I've gotten in the habit of telling uh, particularly students because most of my clients don't really need that kind of service. But my students in class, you know, will be, uh, I'll be talking, there'll be a big group there, blah, blah, blah. But they'll have a question that they don't feel comfortable asking in front of the group or it'll occur to them midweek or something. And uh, it'll occur to me at some point or I'll become aware that they had this massive question and they didn't even reach out to me. And so I've gotten this habit of telling people, uh, so don't be afraid to contact me with any of your questions. I, I've reached a point in my career where I have a lot of free time, yeah. <laughs> which is really true. Uh-huh. I, I have so much free time. Pretty much every minute I spend on this podcast is quote unquote free time mm-hmm. that I don't have to do. Yeah. I like to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But if, 
a, a more sort of rigid priority, like a student issue comes up, then that's, that's the person yeah. who takes priority. Right. And I don't even have that many students, right. you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a full load right now and I have a total of 19 students. It's a good number. Yeah. Uh, so it's not hard to right. help them. Uh, same with my supervisees. I have, right. I don't know, six or seven private practice supervisees. Yeah. And it's same thing to them. I'm like, do not hesitate to reach out to me. Yeah. Worst case scenario, I'm busy, and I'm, but I will never be upset at you yeah. for reaching out. Right. You know? um, and I turn my phone off at night, so don't worry about calling too late or yeah. texting too late or something. I learned to take vacations from Colleen. I never took vacations before. I'd take time off and go visit my family back east. Yeah. But I, that's not really uh, like uh, what I have come to learn what a vacation can be. And uh, those are really good self-care. I didn't realize, you know, you take two weeks off, it's a, like changes your brain. Yeah. And and, and you, you can't know that until you do it. Right. And I'm, when we first met, she's like, well, I want to take two weeks off. So there it is. And I'd be like, I'm not going to have a practice if I take two weeks off. I was so scared. And then she's like, well, we're doing it. And I'm like, okay, we're doing it. And then I took two weeks. Off. I was like, that's the best vacation I ever went on. It was really useful. Yeah, I think it's a bane for private practice clinicians. I was certainly like mm -hmm. this, where you enter graduate school, usually in your 20s, early 30s or something. Yeah. You probably haven't had a lot of good benefits to that date, you know, anyway, right? No. You've probably max had something like a two-week thing per year. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Monday through Friday kind of nine to five grind before that, or you were in college the whole time or something. Right. You go to school, there's not much breaks in school. No. There's breaks in between terms, but usually, you know, that's not so, you know, revitalizing. And then you become a therapist and you work at an agency. Those don't have good benefits. Then you go into private practice. And in the beginning, you're so desperate for clients mm -hmm that you'll be damned if you'll take a vacation mm -hmm. and, and risk losing a client. Right. You'll do everything you can to retain those people. And then five years go by, and you're still kind of building your practice. Yeah. You're still not quite secure money-wise. You're still maybe paying off your student loans. There's all these factors, and you're like, well, okay, maybe I can take a long weekend or something. Yeah, right. That... But, I'm, but I'm definitely not going to take two weeks. Yeah. That's insane. Um. And then by the time you're 15 years into your practice, you're, it's just a habit that you're in yeah. that you just don't have this practice of saying, you know what, I'm going to take some time off. Yeah. It, I, I can't remember. There was, there was one point five years ago or something, I went on a long vacation, something like 11 days or something. And I tracked back how long it had been since I had taken, you know, even close to that much of time off, you know, in a row. And it had been something like 15 years. Wow. It was, it was way before I was a therapist or something. And yes, it is. And you use the phrase accurately of it changes the brain. Yeah. You know, people think of vacation as like, Oh, it's just fun. You know, yeah. it's like, you take a break. Uh, yeah. And it actually does change the brain. Yeah. Your brain wires itself differently. Everyone who has long vacations can attest to this. You come back not only with more energy, but a different perspective. Yeah, perspective. You can see things more clearly, mm -hmm. you, better priorities. And 
the other thing is is your relationships. Usually we vacation with people that we are um, you know, in relationship with, that we have love relationships with or yeah. family relationships with. And those kinds of experiences are uh, again change the brain in terms of how you relate to other people. The bond that you feel is not just a a story you tell yourself, it's a thing you experience. And you can't do that on the daily grind, really. It's yeah. hard. It's, it's really hard anyway. And think of like if you're in a relationship and you're experiencing some distance, a little bit of rockiness, uh, imagine what it would be like to go on two weeks of even a staycation, right? Just like yeah. no distractions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, sometimes that's better because there's no stress of money or agenda or right. flight flying or something. Yeah. Anyway, what I do for self-care are the following things. I exercise. Um, I try, I, I walk on the treadmill real fast. That's what I, I don't, I hate running. I love walking. I hate exercising hard, but I like getting a little sweaty. <laughs> so, I mean, even when I was at the top of my, um, conditioning game when I played football mm-hmm. in high school, we would run all the time and exercise all the time. I was still kind of middle of the pack when it came to long distance running. Um, I could, I could sprint pretty well. I had a pretty good 40 for my class, I suppose. But, um, anyway, so I've realized that about myself that I'm not a jogger. I'm an exerciser in that way. Anyway, so I do that. I try to eat well, but here's the thing. Every few days, I like to can just completely go off the rails in terms of eating and drinking. Oh, and really? It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I just figured I just need that. Like, uh-huh. like yesterday, me and Stacy went to see a movie, the Spider-Man movie, mm-hmm. and we like to go to this one. Um, uh, uh, it's like a, you know, the Cinnabar up oh, in yeah. Montlake. Uh-huh. It's... Uh, they took out every other row and put in tables, right? Yep. So you get a you get a waiter, you get food, you uh-huh. get drinks. And I had a, like a hamburger and fries and pizza and popcorn and you know, wow. So it's not healthy, but it is something that I figure I need. Like every once in a while, I yeah. I, need, I, need, I need that pizza, I need that hamburger, <laughs> I need uh, you know whatever. Dairy Queen is not about nutrition, right? And I, I just, I've just admitted that, like, I, if I don't do that, uh, something bad will happen, you know, like I'll, I'll binge too much or something, you know? Yeah. And so I, so that's a, and I consider that to be kind of self-care. self-care. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when I, another thing I do for self-care is I figure out the rhythm of my week because there's a rhythm of my week anyway, mm-hmm. where, you know, Monday's different from Thursday. Oh, for sure. And a lot of it has to do with the way I've organized my work and everything like that. And so um, uh, noticing those times and thinking ahead of what I need to be doing to take care of myself during that time is important, I think. Physical affection uh, from humans (laughs) and also from animals, from my cat. Your cat. Um, And also late night YouTube rabbit holes of just watching a lot of comedy, Dr. Steve Brule, Conan O'Brien, Billy on the street, that kind of stuff, uh, definitely makes me feel better. Um, also, Ashley on Facebook asks, recommendations for therapists in training. What do you think, Bob? What, what kind of recommendations? Just general. Like, like what should you do I, when I you're know. a therapist in training? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
learn every fucking thing you can. Yeah. Uh, be curious and interested. I'd say be as open as you can about how it's going in your sessions. Even though that's really vulnerable, you learn more by your failures or your tough moments than you will by your successes. That's just true. Um, don't be shy. Ask a lot of questions. Uh, I'm talking about um, asking questions of colleagues who are safe or uh, supervisors, presuming you have one that you feel safe enough with. Um, take cases that you're afraid of. Mm. And... Get help. Why aren't you a supervisor, Bob? Oh, I don't. This is a hard thing to talk about. Okay. Um, my experience in supervision has a lot of punishment in it. And one of the things that's... From supervisors who yeah, supervised you? Who supervised me have been punishing to me. I've had a lot of really good supervisors, ones I've been... I'm so grateful to have had. Uh, so helpful to me. Really, really fabulous. Um... Uh, I, the significant part of my ex experience of being supervised has been punitive. And the other thing that happens for me is I can get really anxious about a trainee's um, um, greenness. Well, why would your bad experiences in supervision make you not want to do a, not want to provide supervision? Because between getting anxious about the greenness of a supervise of a trainee and um, my mod the model of um, punishment so you'd worry that you'd punish supervisees oh no i've done it oh yeah i was supervising folks who were learning dbt skills training and i was doing it in a way that um in my opinion um is too aggressive and too harsh and not supportive enough and i i i at the time i didn't think i was capable of managing my anxiety well enough to actually provide what i thought was really good training. And so I stopped doing it. And in the last year or so, I've been rethinking that because I don't feel so anxious. Um, and I think I got a better, I can manage my own uh, counter-transference better than I could back then. I'm aware of it for sure. And um, I'm rethinking about that. Oh. I'd, I'd like actually to supervise somebody. I'd like to be able to give some of what I got. Yeah. Not some of what I know, not what I've learned, but some of the care and uh, support and patience and learning and kindness that I've received. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to give that. Yeah. Well, I think uh, people deserve to have that, Bob. You're right. denying it. So oh. stop it. Okay. Um, my recommendations for therapists, I think would, I just want to piggyback on or uh, second everything that Bob was saying, a very good pithy advice. I guess the only thing I would add is to not worry so much. Um, yeah, that's good advice. Yeah. Uh, like, I'll just be concrete with my students. All students are quite anxious. Um, they're worried about being seen as a fraud. They're worrying about not being a good enough student or a good enough therapist or, um, you know, not being seen as a good student in comparison to other students or not smart enough or something. And I, I can – so what I – what I can tell people from my experience is that I've trained hundreds of students. I, I can size people up pretty fast, especially when I, after I see them uh, do a role play or something as a therapist. And I'm going to be honest, there are different degrees of innate talent that people have. Some people have uh, this automatic or, or somehow they developed it or something where from minute one in a role play, 
they already have like a good portion of what needs to be done developmentally as a therapist to be an effective therapist. There are other people at the other end of the spectrum who are uh, quite bad at being a therapist. Uh, and that's okay. And here's the thing. I've trained all of those people at both ends of the spectrum to be effective therapists yeah. in the end. Yeah. Uh, maybe it takes them a, li- a little bit longer. Maybe they're, even after graduation, it takes them a little bit longer. Uh, uh, being a therapist, being a counselor is not a three-year career. It's a 30-year career. Yeah, that's the truth. And so t- to be a kind of a bad therapist the first two or three years is not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. And so what I want people to see, if they could just, if I could just download that into their head, they could be like, oh, well, maybe I'm one of those people It just takes longer and just accept that. And that's okay. Um, having said that, even the talented people are terrified. <laughs> in fact, sometimes they're more terrified in my experience. Um, so uh, the other thing is like, again, just, to, to try not to worry so much because the worry completely interferes with your learning. Oh, totally. When I have been a student myself and been scared, I'm not learning anything. All I'm doing is surviving. Mm-hmm. But I'm scared of something that is not real. And that's what I'm trying to tell the students is the thing you're afraid of is not real. Uh, the Because... You're afraid you're going to be called out as a fraud. That's not going to happen. And even if you were, it's not a bad thing to be called out as like you're being fake right now. Who cares? Like I'm, I'm doing, I'm teaching applied couple therapy right now. In every class, we do a lot of role playing. And one of the things that I try to do, I don't know if it's very effective. God knows, it's a fishbowl <laughs> experience. So every, you know, in the middle of class, everyone's demonstrating therapy. Wow, that's intense. It's very intense. I did that, you know, back in grad school. I hated it. Um, cause I'm not good in, in that kind of context. Yeah. yeah. Um, my body just flips out. But anyway, uh, I have, I'm trying to, uh, make it lighter and release some of that anxiety and tension by just saying what I think they think I'm going to say critically. Like one, one student, um, uh, in my mind, uh, asked a question that wasn't very good as a therapist to ask. And so I, in the middle of a role play, I stopped her and I said, you really screwed up that question. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> How does it go? And then I said, and I said, you know, everything you did up until that point was perfect, but yeah. that one question was pretty bad. And she looked at me like, yeah, I know. Cause, cause she said it and it didn't go well. And she was like floundering. Oh. And so, so instead of tiptoeing around it and being like, right. well, okay, well, let's. Let's oh. look at a different way yeah, of asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just said, like, that question was awful. Yeah. Let's what's think of a different one, you know? And she's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, give it a second. Think think of a different way to ask it. Yeah. And she's like, oh, okay, well, how about this way? Perfect. Ask that instead. So great. I, so I'm, I'm trying to just be like, and with another student, I said, I said some joke and I don't think it went over very well, but it was my lame attempt. I said, um, someone volunteered to go first or something. And I said, uh, well, you know, nothing's on the line except for, you know, the future of your career or something. <laughs> and I thought it would go over better because, of course, I'm joking. Reverence. But sure. like a couple people were like, oh, oh man. And I thought, oh, come on, have, people. Like, miss the of course, it's a joke. Yeah. Uh, 
so I, I just wish that people would relax. I like the radical genuineness in all of that. Yeah. I yep. imagine that your student, it might have been a, a tough moment when you said, well, that, you screwed that up or whatever it is you said. But, it, you know, like she took a moment. I, the other day I was in a session with somebody and I asked some lame fucking question. And I said, you know what? That was kind of lame. Can I get a do-over? And I just stopped. And we didn't, I reset and I did my do-over. You just were teaching her to do that. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is I can't really help it because... <laughs> I'm at this stage of my career where I'm like the old crotchety veteran. Oh, shit. <laughs> where I can't not say things that are on I mean, there are moments when we're in staff meetings with all the faculty. There's like 30 or 20 of us or something. Oh, yeah. And something will happen. Like recently, um, I have to be careful because uh, I, I think our my boss's boss's boss listens to the podcast, I oh, think, sometimes. Well. I'll just say it. So... So he did some, he made a mistake or my boss's boss's boss made a mistake and he's a good guy and I trust him and um, I feel like we're friends. Uh, and, but he wasn't in the, in this mm-hmm. meeting and they were saying something that he did. And I just went and I just went, what? Like I, I just, some expletive, like what the fuck did uh-huh. he, you, he did what? Yeah. And you know, a lot of the people are new. In fact, vast majority of them. So they, so they just kind of look at me like, wait, you can say that about him? And I shouldn't be saying shit like that. I don't know. But I can't help it. You, like, There's a turd on the table. You just pointed at it. But I don't think it helps anybody when I do stuff like well, that. Well, okay. Well, let's check for a sec. What has happened since? Uh... I don't know. Like, cause there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. So it's because I'm not program director anymore, right. so I, I'm really not privy to, and I avoid certain meetings that uh, involve those kinds of conversations. So, okay. do you have any information about what's happened since? Not really. Not oh, okay. so. It could have been bad. It could have been good. Well, at the very least, there was a moment of um, wake up because you told me about this event. Oh, I did. Yeah, you did. So I know about this event. Oh. There was a moment of wake up that was necessary because it's like we were talking about in the last podcast, how one voice can get in and then just have this impact and it sort of sends everybody down this road. And here you are being the voice of, yeah, in this case, dissent, but also the voice of reason and wisdom. Like, Hey folks, here's the bigger I know you're looking at me like, um, you know, like you're not so sure, but the truth is, is you are sure. You know that what you said was true. I know I know it's true. It is true. I know I like it. I, I know I think it's wise, it's but I don't know to, what other people think. Well, it's hard to be the lone voice out, at least the lone um, a loud voice. Yeah. You know, maybe everybody else is 15 people in there are thinking the same kind of thing and, you know, maybe too scared to say it because they're the new kid on the block or whatever. And Yeah. I think what it is, is I'm not used to being that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right. I'm the nice guy. Right. I wasn't a speaker outer in any context. I'll look at you now. And I probably always had thoughts, but <laughs> I, I've never been, I've never been that person. Hey, here's what's fucked up. Here's what's fucked up. You do this podcast. And in my opinion, the best thing about the podcast is how you're a speaker outer. But it, I'm only in the room with one person. I don't care. But but that's the difference. That's what I'm all saying. Right, it's like right, fair enough. When I'm by myself or with one person or a few people I trust or something, I, yeah, I don't mind being the speaker outer. Mm-hmm. There's something very very uncomfortable to me about being a speaker outer in a group of people, okay. yeah, like ten yeah. plus. I I think everybody can relate to that. That yeah. is hard to do. 
because I can't know what everyone's thinking. You can't. And and especially in those kind of meetings because it's nope. so uptight. Those meetings are so mm-hmm. uptight. Mm-hmm. And people are so rigid and quiet mm-hmm. and, and, you know, half the people are just on their laptops on Facebook. It's <laughs> like no one's paying attention. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. Um, I'm that person sometimes, which is bad, but – not in that moment. Um, anyway, so let's wrap up with one more question. Uh, let's see. What one do I want to get to here? Josh on Facebook asks, um, oh, no, I already did Josh. Uh, Balas, I don't know if I'm pronounced. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing your name right. Right? Facebook Balas. Ba- Balas? Probably Balas. Um what can't therapy help with? I'm curious where is the line between when you can help a patient and when you can't. So this is a different weird. Do you understand this question? I think he's asking about the limitations of therapy. Yeah. I, th- I think that's what he's asking. Okay. So he's asking about what's not treatable, I think. Well, I think that, but also certain things that are under the purview of therapy. Like the thing that I thought of was, and I don't know if this is answering their question, is that I can't take away the pain of people's lives. No. When someone is grieving something yeah. they or they're going through a divorce or they feel right. very hurt by their spouse or something or I don't know, I can't take away that pain. Of course, they want the pain to go away. And, oh, yeah. And sometimes they'll explicitly ask me, what do I do to take the pain away? Uh, that's a limitation of therapy, you know, yeah. that I, I think isn't necessarily known. Um, mm. And well, when you live in a culture where everything is about make it better, make it change, make it different. Um, and you're given this opportunity to train a person or to uh, suggest to a person that they accept their pain as a way of um, ameliorating it, then um, I can't remember what the then was going to be. Uh, then you have people who think that therapy or something else or that it's possible or they should get rid of their pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in some ways, I don't want to take away people's pain. No. Uh, life, you could. life is is full of wonder and ups and downs. And without pain... There's no pleasure. <laughs> and without pain, there's no meaning. You know, without pain, uh, you're not connected to anything. Uh, so you're saying pain is not bad. No. Let's not pretend that having no. pain is a bad thing or a wrong uh, thing or pathologic. I'm in pain about my dog dying not that long ago. Yeah. To take away the pain would mean I don't give a fuck about my dog dying not yeah. that too long ago. Right. I don't want that. Right. Uh, it's horrible. It's hor- horrible pain. Yeah. Um. So now I'm not saying that pain is wonderful um, in terms of emotional pain, physical pain. I don't wish on anybody. That's Mm, awful. But, um, but anyway, yeah, that's a limitation. Another limitation is uh, that I can't heal people quickly. Oh yeah. Um, Actually. uh, And it makes me very sad uh, to think about that. I, I wish I could take a, I could help people heal quickly. Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel like, there's a need to have people heal slowly. That's not something that I think is important for meaning. Um, maybe point. not immediately, but uh, but fat. You know, someone actually was 
sent me a very concerned, somewhat upset email because recently I talked about treating disorganized, attached people. Someone was emailing like, I have a disorganized, attached client. It's really hard and um, I, it's hard to get them to open up and I feel very frustrated. And the gestalt of what I was saying was it takes time. Uh, disorganized attachment didn't uh, wasn't formed overnight. It's not going to be cured overnight. Um, it's going to take a long time. When, when you're disorganized attachment or when you have very complicated attachment uh, working models and experiences, you're going to react in a, in a very difficult way to other people. You have a lot of need and, and you have a lot of hopes deep down, but because you're disorganized, you don't really have a way of organizing your approach to attachments and organizing your defenses and organizing how to deal with your emotions. And, and a lot of people can just resort to just, just being standoffish and pushing people away because it's easier that way. And so it's hard to break through that wall. And so what I was saying was to the clinician, I was saying, you know, just lower your expectations um, know that it, and he was talking about how it was very frustrating to him he was just like he won't I'm trying to get him to do this and that and he's just not listening he's not opening up and I, I was like yeah I can get that it can get very fr- it can be very frustrating to work with people like that because um, you see the need and they will give glimpses of being connected and then they just push you away and they, they don't respond or they sort of look at you like there's something wrong with you they might even attack you it depends it can be very frustrating. Um, and also, it takes a long time for people. The The best thing you can get a disorganized, attached person to do is to develop into avoidant or preoccupied. You're not going to advance a disorganized person into secure in the time that you're going to know them. You're, you're just helping them to get to a place where they have at least some defenses for uh, pain, emotional pain and rejection and all that kind of stuff, which is usually a preoccupied stance, stance or an avoidance stance or some kind of combination. And so... That was my approach. And then someone who uh, I think identifies themselves as being disorganized attachment as a client emailed and was was upset with me saying that I was painting a picture. Well, she was kind of asking me questions. She's like, so are you saying like I'm doomed? You know, and I said specifically in the episode that people are not doomed. Uh, People can heal and they do heal. And I've and I've helped people heal. I've seen people heal. I've healed from my own attachment injuries, um, it, but it takes a long time, and they don't ever really go away fully, you know? Like, you're 60 years old. You've been through 40 years of therapy. What's the chance that you have no residual attachment sensitivities, right? So, Absolutely. Right. So what I was saying uh, – so anyway, she was saying – so you're saying that I'm always going to have these problems, and I'm always going to be in this position, and – um, and I'm, and it's upsetting to hear you talk about how it's hard to work with people like us. And I get all that, you know, and I'm, and I'm with you. Um, it, it, it's everything, all of it is true. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's, uh, life is tough. And when you've been traumatized relationally, then it's, I don't know. Do you have any, uh, I'm agreeing with what you're saying. Um, uh, I have a disorganized. That's how I am. Mm. And uh, let's see, why am I saying that? I don't feel hopeless. I think it's really interesting to think of moving from disorganized to either preoccupied or avoided. I never thought about it before. I like it because um, it certainly seems more achievable. <laughs> I think I'm blushing. Um, I guess uh, the person who wrote you who was upset it must be hard to see the other side and to think that 
um, it must feel really threatening to think that the other person might feel frustrated. I imagine um, if I'm a client and I'm thinking that my therapist could be frustrated with me or whatever, that that could really scare me and make me think that I'm not safe or I'm not lovable or not loved or cared for. Like it really threatened that. And boy, I sound a little poly fucking Anna, but I'm going to say it anyways. What a great opportunity to talk to your counselor about that, about your own fears, what you learned on the podcast or what you heard on the podcast and how it impacted you. Like if that person is in counseling and um, she has a, she or he has a great opportunity or they have a great opportunity to make use of what happened for them. I think finding out that my therapist actually likes me has been really helpful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's no way out of that, right? It's nope. like every all of it's true. I, 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 it's all true, and you're just saying it unvarnished, yeah, yeah. which is hard to hear, yeah, and and also fucking true, yeah. But I like the way you're saying it because you're saying it in a caring way, in a matter of fact way, and it doesn't have any. Um, it's not Pollyanna, and it's not um, tiptoey, and it's not you know. You're just kind of calling it like it is. So right. I, I like that. Yeah, I think that the the. This last thing I'll say is that the alternative would be that I don't tell clinicians that it's going to be a hard road when you're treating someone who has disorganized attachment, that it's, it's, there's going to be some bumps and it's going to be hard and you're going to get frustrated. And the, you know, the, the way that I think about it is, you know, the client gives you things that you have to metabolize as a, as a therapist. Yeah for the client you have to metabolize that and it's not going to be easy and no. it's you're going to be stressed out you're going to be frustrated at times you're, you're going to be hurt at times you're going to be scared at times but man what a glorious thing that we're doing everyone signs up for that it's, yeah. not, it's not something that therapists do uh, because they have to they signed up to do this stuff yeah. and that's the stuff like it'd be like a firefighter it's like well, you know, sometimes, you know, someone accidentally catches their house on fire and you know what? It gets hot. And so, so I have to go into that house and, and sometimes it's smoky and hot. Like, it's like, you don't want to say, well, I don't want to hear about your, your frustration as a firefighter, you know, and that makes me feel bad as someone who caught my house on fire sure. in an accident, but it was all accidental. No one, you know, it, yeah. it's life is hard and we're all in this together and we're all trying to make the world a better place and and it's and if i could make healing happen faster than i would i yeah. can't no. and i know that's distressing to hear i know it's very distressing to think about always having at least some level of attachment injury for the rest of your life having some level of that pain some level of that grief some level of that trauma for the rest of your life that's extremely distressing to think yeah. about it's awful it's a tragedy it's unfair that you went through those things and those things are retained for your entire life it's unfair i get that but that's the reality. And um, to say otherwise is to, you know, lie or put yeah. false hope in people. Yeah, yeah. It's not false. And yeah. Anyway. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining thing, us. Man. What? That was a hell of a thing. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>